Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into JIRA tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. You better take care of yourself or you can't take care of anybody else. Once my glass is full, everything that is left is for everyone else. They can have it all. But I should first fill my glass. Now, Dr. Amen is one of America's leading psychiatrists and brain health experts. He stays busy. He has authored or co-authored nine professional book chapters, 85 scientific articles, and more than 40 books. The name of his book is The End of Mental Illness, How Neuroscience is Transforming Psychiatry and Helping Prevent or Reverse Mood and Anxiety Disorders, ADHD, Addictions, PTSD, Psychosis, Personality Disorders, and more. But the main title is The End of Mental Illness. That is a provocative title. You're not mincing words there. What do you mean by The End of Mental Illness? I hate the term mental illness. I've been a psychiatrist 40 years now, and I've always hated it because it shames people. It's stigmatizing. When you call someone mental, that's not a good thing. And it's wrong. Um, based on our database of now 160,000 scans on people from 150 countries, we've really come to believe that most psychiatric problems are not mental health issues at all. Rather, they are brain health issues that steal your mind. And this one idea really changes everything. Get your brain right. Get the physical functioning of your brain right, and then your mind is better because the brain creates the mind. And very few people are talking about the impact of traumatic brain injury on mental health challenges, on a bad diet, on hypertension, diabetes, mold exposure. And we need to stop what we're doing because it's not working. Um, Tom Insel, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, said outcomes in psychiatry are no better than they were in the 1950s. And that should horrify us. And I believe what we need to do is change the paradigm. Now, it doesn't mean psychology and psychotherapy is not important. Of course it is. But I think of it as optimize the hardware of your soul, your brain, and then program it. But too often people try to program it. And when the hardware is not working right, 
they become demoralized, uh, they become depressed and they stop seeking help. So we need a new paradigm. That's the idea behind the end of mental illness. To be clear, and I want people to understand this fully and completely, and so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. And I am playing devil's advocate because you know, because of conversations you and I have had both on and off camera, that I agree with what you're saying. But to play devil's advocate and ask a few questions, you're not saying that if somebody is showing what we now call schizophrenic behavior patterns or depression or panic disorders or anxiety or whatever, that that's not real, that those are not real disorders that people aren't really having disrupted lives from schizophrenia or depression or whatever. You're not saying that those are not real disorders, correct? Correct. They're completely real. But being schizophrenic or being depressed doesn't tell you one thing about why you're schizophrenic or why you're depressed. Think about it. Lincoln, and I'm a huge Lincoln fan, um, had severe depression during his life. He was actually suicidal in the winter of 1840. And how did his doctor diagnose him? So his doctor was Anson Henry. He talked to him. He looked at him. He looked for symptom clusters and then diagnosed and treated him. That's exactly how depression is being diagnosed today. Depression is a symptom like chest pain with many different causes. And if we don't understand what's causing it, that's why at Amen Clinics, we look at the brain. How do I know? Does your brain work too hard or not hard enough? Is it toxic or traumatic? Um, that we really need to change how we approach these things. It's not that bipolar disorder is not real. It's totally real and will ruin your life if you don't treat it properly. But we're not talking about why do you have it? And oh, by the way, if we get your brain right, your medication is going to work so much better. Two things that have always stuck out to me. One is that when we use psychometrics, people think, we're measuring depression or anxiety or whatever, and that's absolutely not true. With psychometrics, what we're doing is we've given these test items to lots and lots of people, and when you take a test and you come back and score high for depression, we can't really say you're depressed. What we're saying is, you have an awful lot in common with people that we have observed to be depressed. We gave these test items to a big population of people that we observed to be depressed, and you answered the questions the way those people answered the questions. So when you take a psychometric test, we're basically comparing your answers to people that we've clinically observed to behave in a way that we've labeled as depressed. And so I think people misunderstand how psychological tests work. And then secondly, 
these drugs that we give people to treat schizophrenia, depression, bipolar, if you go look these drugs up and look in the section where it says agent of action, how it works, most of them it says unknown. It just says we've given these people and some people get better, but we don't know which means they don't understand the relationship between the brain or the biochemistry and this symptom pattern. They just gave them these and some people got better, so they licensed the drug and gave it to them without really understanding how the brain or the body actually responded to them. That's scary to me. And that's common. Right. That's how most people are diagnosed and treated without any biological information. And I love being a psychiatrist, but I belong to the only medical specialty that virtually never looks at the organ they treat. And they call me crazy. And I'm like, no, more information, you know, like. Cameron, the kid you and I did together, he was dropped like 10 feet onto his head. And yes, he has mental health problems, but he's failed all these doctors. And because nobody's asking, well, why is he depressed? Well, why is he addicted? And if you don't look, you don't know. And then you come up with all sorts of crazy ideas on, you know, well, this is why people are depressed. It's because they have a serotonin deficiency. It's like, no, you broke his frontal lobe or his temporal lobe. Let's work on fixing that. And then he's likely to get much better. You say since 1999, suicide has increased 33%, enough so that it's decreasing overall life expectancy. And during the same period of time, Cancer has decreased 27%. To me, that speaks to the fact that the stigma is there. People are not asking for help when their actual quality of life has eroded to the point that they can't endure it anymore. But cancer, they get help because there's no stigma. So one's up a third, the other's down a third. And since the pandemic, I think suicide is up way more. I've just never seen anything like it. Um, and, and it's because we're working on the wrong paradigm. You know, why are we making such progress in cancer and heart disease and virtually every other aspect of medicine, but we're not making progress in psychiatry? And I think it's because the paradigm is wrong making diagnoses based on symptoms with no biological data. And uh, the end of mental illness is trying to like go, there's another way to do this. And we study our outcomes at Amen Clinics. So we've been doing it since 2011. If you come to see us, we actually enter you into a formal outcome study. And on average, patients have 4.2 diagnoses. They're complicated. They have um, failed 3.3 providers and five medications. And at the end of six months, if we treat them, 84% are better. No one's got those outcomes that publishes them. And it's because we get more information and we're decreasing stigma 
But what I love, we increase compliance. People want better brands. And so like with my NFL group, they like being coached. And so they'll do the things knowing that in four months or six months later, I'm likely to rescan them and go, are we doing better? And uh, I just get so excited about that. And I mentioned to you when we were not um, on camera about this kid, Jose, who came to see me because of your show, like 10 years ago, you were doing a show on compulsive cheaters and he cheated on his wife eight times in four years. His wife had a gun. She was going to kill him. And as part of the show, I got to scan him. He had a damaged brain from football, mixed martial arts, had terrible habits. And when we fixed his brain and seven months later, I scanned it so much better, he's making better decisions. And, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, but ultimately a person's success in life is a sum of all the decisions they've made. And as you make better decisions, your wife doesn't want to kill you anymore. <laughs> You're more likely to not have to visit your children on the weekend. And he just graduated from nurse anesthetist school. I, I'm just so proud of him. With a better brain comes a better life. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Dr. Jabor is an internationally recognized neuroradiologist. He's got more than 30 years experience in academic and clinical practice. There's nothing invasive here. You're not putting magnets in the brain. You're not putting implants in the brain, which are fine to do if you need to. And there are things. Mm -hmm. There are indications for that. Yeah. That are indications yeah. for that. But this is much safer than right. that. And you're talking about Mapping the brain, locating this area with an fMRI, correct? Yeah. So we use a GPS system, uh, a targeting system using advanced MRI and fMRI to locate the specific node and where exactly it is. Because you want to direct the magnetic field, which is an external magnetic field outside of the head. It's, as you mentioned, nothing invasive. But the magnetic field can be targeted to within 2.5 centimeters from the skin surface, and also the epicenter, you would like to target the specific area you want to treat. So you put a, a head holder with a device which has on it a GPS system. We have the 3D, you know, the X, Y, and Z coordinates, north, south, east, west, plugged in electronically into the head holder, and you have an image that you can see where the epicenter is, and then you, you you concentrate or you, you angle your head holder so that the sweet spot of the magnetic field is over the area of the brain that you want to switch off or on and to get more into rhythm with the brain's um, natural default mode network. Okay. And so you then start putting 
magnetic impulses. It switches on and off a magnet. So um, um, it's an electromagnet that switches click, 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 click. You know that noise in an MRI scan? It's just the same as an MRI magnet, except within a small device. And it changes the magnetic field within the tissues. If you remember from high school physics, if you have an, a magnet switching on and off, and you have fluid in that field, you'll create a current. So what we're doing is creating a current in the wires that represent the white matter wiring in the brain to switch it on and make it rhythmic rather than firing in a way that's incoherent. How long does the treatment last and how often do you have to do it? And for how many days in a row so there's a huge breakthrough. You know, TMS started in 2010, around 2010, and the treatment required one treatment a day of an hour a day for 30 days. Right. And now, since about two and a half years ago, and now finally FDA approved, is the Theta Burst concentrated um, TMS where it's just three minutes takes three minutes to do what used to take an hour, and you can do five of those treatments in one day. So that rather than having treatment for a month, you can get a full course, five treatments a day for five days. Okay, so there's three minutes, mm -hmm. five treatments a day for five days. For five days. So you're talking 15 minutes a day. Separ separated right. over a couple of hours. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about 15 minutes of treatment a day spread out throughout the day for five, for days. five days. And what's the efficacy? 80% of people with this treatment feel much be uh, significantly better um, as opposed to just over 60% before. So there's a huge improvement in, uh, in efficacy. 80% of the people have a marked improvement in depression and anxiety. Yes. And this is without pharmacology. They're not on medication. Right. And on follow-up, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, what's so the longevity? The durability is very good. This is the work that's going on now. We've been doing this only for two or three years now. But it looks from all early reports that it's as or more durable than the traditional treatment. Yeah, it's the precision that's making the difference that's, here, that's right? That's right. I think it's two parts. It's the delivery of this theta burst, a more concentrated, powerful, I think that's the right term, without having biologically negative side effects, as well as the fact that we can see the abnormality better with advanced imaging and fMRI to specifically target the area rather than the general region. Yeah. There are people suffering with depression and anxiety that is debilitating. You know what I'm talking about. People that just simply... Suicidal, yeah. Absolutely cannot put one foot in front of the other. And they've tried medications, and so often they say, I was on the medication, but I felt like a zombie. The side effects were so bad for me, it was like, which is worse? And then for some people where DNA tests are done and then they dial in the medication, and I'm not trying to be anti-medication here, but when you're talking about a non 
pharmacological, non-invasive, non-side effect, 80% efficacy, long-term durability durability here, anxiety, depression, loneliness, stress are at the highest levels they've been probably ever recorded, according to the CDC and other agencies that have been surveying this type thing. I'm not saying if you go get TMS treatment that all of a sudden you're going to get your job back and your financial problems are going to go away, but you're going to be better equipped to cope with, overcome, look for solutions to, and deal with that. Because when you are depressed, you're not as cognitively efficient as you would have been otherwise. You're not as active. Your energy levels, everything goes down biochemically, physiologically, psychologically, everything goes down when you're depressed. And if you're anxious, again, you're distracted. You're hearing a lot of noise and stuff. You're not nearly as efficient concentration-wise because you have all this going on in your head. Now, you said if it weren't for the fact that these are a bit expensive, nationally around the country, what do these kind of treatments generally cost someone, and does insurance cover them? Well, the good news is insurance is now starting to cover them, and so the Blue Cross and even Medicare are seeing the tremendous results from this. So this is, as we're speaking, they're becoming covered by insurance. Um, when when not covered by insurance, it's about $400 per treatment. So that's for a course of of 30 treatments, that's quite quite significant for most people. And um, even though the benefit from that, they they feel it, and uh, you know the productivity, getting back to their life, makes it worthwhile. The medication is very expensive too if you're taking pharmacological meds for this. But um, it's it's about three fifty to four hundred dollars a treatment, I believe. Okay, so and you're talking about twenty five treatments. Ten, I think it's about seven thousand dollars for seven to eight thousand dollars for a course of treatment. Yeah. Okay. But insurance is going to come through, and um, we always help people as well. You know, um, as you know, we yeah. often do it for. for I don't know how you nothing. stay in business. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes they're heartbreaking stories, and you know, there's a tremendous good feeling for our team when we see we help people. So it's um, it's not always about the financial component. Are there places around the country that do a good job on this? Yeah, I think they do, and um, they use the traditional treatment. What we're talking about today is something that outside of certain academic and very specialized institutions are not being able to do the targeted um, imaging-based TMS where you're actually able to subselect areas of the frontal executive area and, and concentrate on those. So the traditional treatment that's been going on for seven or eight years is, is a general treatment to the general area. They get about a 58% improvement rate. And there are, um, there are centers all over the country that do it without imaging guidance. Now, we will provide the imaging and send the database to the TMS centers, and there are plans to educate all those psychiatrists on how to use the imaging-guided system. So the primary impact now is depression and anxiety. 
Yes. And of course, that is comorbid to so many other things. So whether you're dealing with a primary diagnosis of PTSD or whatever. Traumatic brain injury or TBI. Or especially things like um, brain degenerative disease. You know, depression is one of the one of the most terrible parts of Alzheimer's disease. And if you can get people out of that depression, you, you know, you're stimulating neurological tissue in a patient with a brain that's degenerating, you can give them more time before they have their memory slip away. And it's got to seem like it rolls the clock back. Yeah, it I know just, it doesn't, I'm yeah, just saying. It just, just keeps the neurological tissue regenerating itself. And in stroke... And in multiple sclerosis now, there are also very big applications for this. So it's it's a big, big advance generally, and I think we're going to see a lot more of this. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist. She's a New York Times bestselling author. And in addition to her clinical practice, she's co-host of the popular Dear Therapist podcast, which is produced by my good friend Katie Couric. She also writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. Getting trained in psychology and being in practice and all can go down so many different paths and impact so many people where the people that we're actually working with one-on-one become teaching tools for millions of people that might be reading about it or watching it. But that does change the way that you interact with that person, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that that's what I'm trying to do is exactly what you said, which is to really bring emotional health and well-being to everybody, to make it accessible for everybody. And so I think when we're working one-on-one in the room with somebody, um, you know, we have a, a great impact, but we also can bring that to people who maybe aren't going to go to therapy, but really want help with their relationships with their parents, their children, their, you know, figuring out their relationships to themselves. And I think that that's so important that everybody has access to that. You make a really great point where you say, the story people come to you with in the beginning is typically not the story it winds up being about and not the story that you end with at the other end. And of course, that's the therapeutic process, but you describe it in a way people can understand. They come to you with a story and they're not reliable narrators. How do you go about getting them to reevaluate their story and change that narrative? I think you have to ask the right questions. And I think that people don't know what questions to ask themselves because they're very married to their story and they feel like um, they're very stuck. And the reason they're stuck is because there's something faulty in their narrative. And so my job sitting with somebody is to help them ask themselves some questions that they haven't been able to do. I think that a lot of times we don't ask those questions because of shame. I think that we feel like if I face the truth of something about myself that maybe I'm not proud of, um, I'm, I'm a bad person. And we really want to distinguish between, you know, what it means to do something, which is different from who you are as a person. So a lot of times people don't tell you the whole story. They minimize certain things. They spend a lot of time talking about what other people have done. And we really just want to humanize the fact that, We are all imperfect people. 
um, that we grow and change because of these imperfections and that really being honest with ourselves and with the people in our lives is going to free us from whatever is ailing us. Yeah, and your book, I want to really encourage people to read this book. Maybe you should talk to someone. I highly, highly recommend it. But in this, you talk about that there's a common theme to their stories that include an element of emptiness and disconnection. No matter how many people are in their lives, whether it's work, family, extended family, or whatever, that a lot of these narratives that people have, they don't feel connected. They do feel a sense of emptiness. And I get a sense from a lot of the people that I talk to of them putting themselves in a victim role in that regard as well. Well, I think this lack of connection is a big theme, especially now. And, you know, I I should just give this some context to say that in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I follow the stories of four seemingly very different people that I see in therapy. But there's a fifth patient in the book, and that is me, as I go through therapy with my own therapist. And I did that because I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to be a person in the world. And I didn't want to be the expert up on high because I truly believe, especially as all these years as a therapist, I've seen that we are all more the same than we are different. And so I think that when, when people are struggling with something, whatever their issue is, there are real issues that they're struggling with, very kind of discrete issues. But underneath it is often this sense of not enough connection. How are their lives peopled? And are those relationships nourishing them? So they might have a lot of people in their lives, but they might not be nourishing because they're operating on a superficial level or they're having a lot of difficulty with getting along or they aren't opening up, they're not being vulnerable. So there are a lot of reasons that we feel disconnected. And I think part of it has to do with, we feel like whatever we're going through is that we're alone in it. And we don't talk about our emotional health as much as we need to, in the sense that if something happens to you physically, like let's say that you, you, know, you fall down and you, you, you know, break your arm or something, Um, We're going to go to the doctor for that. And we're not going to compare it to something and say, well, it's not like I have whatever it is, you know, stage four cancer or whatever, something that you think is more severe than that. With our emotional health, we say, yeah, I don't know. I'm feeling like disconnected or I'm feeling kind of sad or I, I just something's off. But, you know, I have a roof over my head and food on the table, so it's okay. I'm not going to get help for that. We don't have this hierarchy of pain with our physical health. We, we get help, but with our emotional health, we do. So if you're having chest pain, you're probably going to go see a cardiologist before you have a heart attack. If you're having emotional pain, the people who come to my office are usually having an emotional heart attack. They didn't come when they were just having the equivalent of the chest pain. And now, first of all, it's harder to treat because now you're like, it's really gotten bad. But secondly, you suffered unnecessarily for a long time when you didn't need to. So I think part of the disconnection is that we don't realize how important it is to tend to our emotional health, not when it gets really bad, but to make that a part of our lives, to make that a priority. Yeah, and I think we have to own that because one of the things that I think we're really deficient in society-wise is we don't do anything in the educational system 
to teach kids to recognize red flags in their mental health. We don't teach them what you're feeling might be anxiety or depression or some other mental health anomaly. We don't teach them what that is. We don't teach them how to recognize it. We don't teach them what the resources are. We don't teach them how to avoid the stigmas associated with that. And there's a counselor in every school, but they just are pretty passive. They sit there and wait for somebody to come knock on their door. They're not proactive in most cases. And there is a stigma. If you're seen going into the counselor's office, you're like, well, you know, what's wrong with this person? And they're kind of ashamed of it. I think we have to do a better job of saying, look, this is something that you need to learn about and recognize. It's been a long time since I've been in private practice, and I so admire those people that do it. When I was in private practice, one of my most eye-opening experiences was that I had people that never knew they were depressed until they weren't. I had people that came in, and they didn't come in because they were depressed. They came in because of a marriage or their kid was on drugs or something was going on. And they never knew that they had depression until it lifted, and they began to say, oh, wow, the sky is blue. There are people around that care about me and that I care about, and I have energy for my job and my family. And all of a sudden, they said, what's going on? They had lived years being depressed and never knew it and said, Doc, what's happened here? What, what's going on? How many people are living with depression and don't even know it because they don't see the red flags and have not labeled it? Yeah, I'm just nodding because that's exactly what I see in my practice is so many times people do not know how to identify what's going on with them. And if they've been living with depression for most of their lives, they just think that's life. That's normal. They don't know that there's something different. They think, oh, yeah, the problem is that I keep arguing with my husband. They don't know I'm also depressed. And so, you know, and, and anxiety, sometimes people do not know that they have severe anxiety that is really getting in the way of their functioning in, in a way that they finally see when the anxiety is dealt with. Um, I think when you talk about that kid going into the counselor's office at school, we see that as a sign of weakness, but really it's a sign of strength. That kid is saying, I want to get help for this. So whenever somebody admits that they need help, that it takes so much courage, so much bravery. And I wish that in our culture, and I think it's changing, but it has so much farther to go, that we could see that when somebody wants to do something for their emotional health, that that person is extremely strong. They're not weak, they're strong. Dr. Corey Yeager is an NBA psychotherapist and author of a great book called How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. I've read it cover to cover, and I'm going to talk about not all 40 of these conversations because I want you to buy the book and read it. You don't just need to read it. You need to use it. But we're going to talk about that today. Dr. Yeager is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's been focusing his therapeutic practice primarily serving the African-American community. But what he has to say, his wisdom cuts across all socioeconomic stratas, all races, colors, creeds, doesn't matter. You know what people don't realize is we talk at 120 words a minute. 
Now, my wife will gust up to 160 every once in a while, but <laughs> gust. <laughs> but we we talking about 120 words a minute, but we think at 1200 words a minute. Yeah. So if a bully tells us something or we tell ourselves something, I've had women yeah. that said in the 8th grade they were walking through the cafeteria and they heard somebody say, "Oh, look at her fat ass." Yeah. And she might have been a beanpole, but they yeah. said that. Yes. And she heard it. And it might have heard it one time, but she starts repeating it at oh. a speed of 10x. See? 120 to 1,200. Boy. She starts repeating it over and over and over and over. Yes. That gets etched in her brain. Yes. That takes over. And this is actually a neurological change in the amygdala. It's like being on a racetrack with no exit ramp. Yes. And gets stuck. That's why that internal dialogue is so important. It is. You have that, do you talk to yourself with encouraging inner thoughts yes. is one of your questions That's that right. you ask yourself. And we have to answer that, though, Doc, yeah. right? It's one thing yeah. to ask that question, critically important. If you don't do anything else, at least begin by being curious with yourself and asking. But once we gain awareness, that's the thing I love about awareness and consciousness. Once you attain any version or level of awareness or consciousness, you never get to turn it off. As much as you may want to, you never get to turn that switch off. So the question that will always remain is, now that I'm aware, what will I do with this? What is the move forward? Um, and we can, we can play the games and trick ourselves, but we're now aware. So we can talk about unconscious bias and implicit bias. Um, I think the cousin of implicit bias is cognitive dissonance. We should want dissonance. We want to have the cognitive dissonance is just having that battle with yourself. New information comes. I say, oh, my God, I never thought about that, didn't know that. Now the battle ensues. So now we can't blame it on unconsciousness. And that doesn't mean we're going to make the right choice and do the right thing, quote, unquote, all the time. But that dissonance is good. Yes. As you say, I was talking to Joe Rogan on Thursday last week down in Austin. He's a good friend of mine, and I was talking to him on his show, and I was telling him that dissonance or pain can be a really good motivator. Yeah. I was thinking back to when I was growing up as a kid. I used to go to my grandparents every summer, and I would stay with them in the thriving metropolis of Mundy, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Thriving metropolis. Yeah, I think there were 1,500 people oh, there. Oh, boy. Sounds like my hometown. Literally, there was one stoplight. Oh, boy. And it flashed. <laughs> and it got so hot there in the summer, you'd just look out in the backyard uh. and your dog just burst into flame. <laughs> it was so hot. But we would go to the swimming pool and stuff, and once in a while, we'd get stupid and walk across an asphalt mm. highway barefooted. <laughs> you know what happens? You get about halfway across, Ooh, and you go, oh, my God. Bad choice. So you're in the middle of the highway, and your feet are just melting. Okay, so what are you going to do? You're either going to run back uh -huh. to the grass on this side, or you're going to sprint to the other side. Yep. But what you're not going to do is stand there in the middle of that highway and let your feet melt. Right. That pain is going to cause you to move. move. You're either going to go one way or you're going to go the other. Now, yes. what I realized about that is people, therefore, 
when they feel that pain, they resolve quickly. Quickly. I used to work with juries a lot. That's how I met Oprah, actually, working on her trial up in Amarillo. Juries make their minds up really quick. Remember growing up, you'd be wrestling around with your siblings and break a lamp. There is a dead heat race to get to mama first. Yes, to tell your version. Whoever has primacy yes. has a better chance of surviving. Yes, sir. So you want to tell your story first. <laughs> and that jury is going to make their mind up really early. Yeah, yeah. So once you get somebody to take a position and go to one side of the road or the other, how hard is it to get them to come off that cool grass back, back. onto that hot highway and yeah. come all the way to the other side? Yeah. People make up their mind early, go back to where it's comfortable, and then it's real hard to get them to move their position, yes. go back into that pain, and come to the other side. And some of these people that are in life right now are so stuck yeah. that getting them to come out of that position they're in go through the pain of change to get to a new place is real hard. Troubling. And that's what you're doing with these 40 questions. You're luring them back onto that hot highway to get to a new place. And you're doing it a step at a time instead of asking them to jump across the highway. You're saying, all right, first, who's the most important person in your life? Do you allow yourself to dream about what you want. Do you know who you are? Do you look in the mirror? Do you realize what you're saying to yourself? You're asking these people, and the reason I love your book so much is these are stepping stones that take them across that hot highway to get them where they're going. That's why I love your 40 questions so much. You've got a billion things that that you've made me think about. I'll see if I can capture a couple. Um, One thing that that I am, I live by, is an African proverb, and that's the, really the premise of the book. And the proverb is, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Grab it in. So, right? So that those 40 questions or conversations to hold with self, the overarching question, how am I doing, those bite-sized approaches to those small conversations can help move you. The other thing that I talk a lot about that I think is really important, Doc, is how do we view or engage pain? I see that pain should oftentimes be the best indicator of growth. That if I'm going to grow, think about the things that you've done in your life that were really good. That if you go to those days, weeks, months previous to that moment that was beautiful, there was probably some associated pain, discomfort. Well, we, we, what we'll tend to do is lean away from discomfort. No one wants discomfort. No one wants pain. But if we can reframe that into saying that pain, that discomfort may be telling me that I may be on the edge of birthing something quite beautiful. Labor pains that a woman goes through. Why do you get through it? Because you know what is to come. Um, so recognizing all of the, that discomfort and, and that chaos that we oftentimes will have to ins- deal with, that if we understand it or see it as an opportunity for that growth is important. Nelson, I'll, and I'll shut up. Nelson Mandela said a quote that I also live by, that in life we never lose, we either win or we learn. So we're going to take some lumps, but it's not just a loss for the sake of a loss. 
that it must be a loss, quote-unquote loss, for the sake of learning from that. I had coaches. George Allen was my head coach at Long Beach State and Willie Brown, and they always said, hey, you're going to make mistakes. We're not mad at you for making mistakes. First of all, if you're going to make them, make them going 100%, 100 miles an hour. But if you're going to make mistakes, don't make the same mistake over and over. Learn from it and make new mistakes. Seek the new mistake because that means I've, I've got the lesson from that old mistake. Um, and I think a lot of this, Doc, is just reframing how we see the world, how we see ourselves. Again, simple, not necessarily easy, not necessarily complex, but it's something that we can do. But what you're doing is you've got people engaging themselves. That's what I'm saying about the 40 question. you got people engaging themselves. And I play tennis every day. I started college on a football scholarship and got a head and neck injury, so I was over. So I took up tennis and finished on a tennis scholarship, mm. which was a lot easier on my body. And so now I play tennis every day of my life. And if I don't finish playing tennis and have to wring my socks out <laughs> and I'm not just completely exhausted, at least for 30 minutes afterwards, I don't feel like I've had a workout. If you just go down there and stand around, I could stand around at the bus stop. What's the point? Yeah. Why get dressed, put on your tennis shoes? You're not going to go down and work out. Yeah. You got to push yourselves. Every day. I tell people, if you got a job without pressure, you don't really have a job. No. You're just going down somewhere and getting paid. Yeah. Like yeah. I say, nobody wants pain and nobody wants conflict, perhaps. But if you work through it and you enter the conversation, you enter the whole transactional process at a higher level the next day, then you're moving up. You're moving up. And yeah, you got to be trying to get better every day at being a parent, at being a wife, at being a husband, Everything. at being a citizen, at being something. You want to be the river, not the pond. And That's to right. do that, you've got to put something into it. I say it to our players all the time, if you step on the court and go an hour and a half at practice. It's what I pray, usually an hour and a half. If you step off the court at the end of the practice and you didn't get better, you just blew an hour and a half of your day yeah. that you'll never get back. Yeah. So move, as you begin that process of walking on the court, committing to self that I'm going to find a way to get better. I'm going to get whatever it is in whatever fashion or manner that better, which is a very relative term, that you can commit to bettering yourself for that next stretch of time um, and pursuing that with a vigor and a zest um, that pushes you. Again, the individual gets better, but that means they show up in the world as a better version of themselves. And now that social network is better because of the work that they've done. Dr. Dina Mannion is a celebrated doctor of psychology and licensed clinical social worker since 1993, specializing in substance abuse, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, couple counseling, family therapy, and really just a lot of important areas in psychology and human functioning. I don't want people to hear me or us saying that anytime someone is offended that it's a paper tiger because that's not true. There are legitimate situations where people have experienced legitimate trauma, 
to do something that calls that trauma to the forefront and creates a legitimate mental, emotional, physiological reaction is very unfortunate and something that should be avoided at all cost. If you know that it's coming and you can tell somebody about it, then great. Then they can avoid that. And if there's something in a course description that lets somebody know, hey, we're going to cover a book in here that deals with rape or molestation or home invasion or something that hits really close to home, then by all means, opt out. Give the person the opportunity to say, I want to avoid that. And if someone is in a situation where they have been traumatized in a legitimate way and we can provide a healing, nurturing, safe environment for them, we should do that in the educational environment. But there has to be some kind of threshold. If you're so hypersensitive, so fragile that virtually anything a professor says, they're so paranoid that somebody in the class is going to be headed over to the dean's office after class by something they said in an approved curriculum, and it's going to get traction, then we've got the tail wagging the dog. It seems to me the first step that I would have advocated in some of these situations is if the student came in and said, I found this to be offensive, then make your case. And clearly, if it's blatant bigotry, if there's some, it doesn't have to be racial, whatever it might be, then look at it. If it's a pattern of behavior, then you deal with it. If it's not, then you try to have the two resolve their differences. Is this your intention? Figure it out. Hopefully, the two can resolve the situation. That's part of the maturity of the student having a difference. Now, I understand there's a difference in power between the student and if they're making an anonymous complaint and they don't want to face the teacher and fear for their grade or whatever. I understand that. But to the extent that the student can resolve these things themselves, they need to do that. They need to own that. If it's a situation where there's a power imbalance, I get it. But they need to be held accountable for what's the real issue. You just can't put something in the complaint box and walk away. You've got to stand for the complaint. You've got to give a rationale for it. And there's got to be more to it than just, I was offended, Bob student. And you may or may not get your way as a result. I mean, it might not go your way, and then you have to deal with that. As I've said, if it's a legitimate thing, then certainly accommodations can be made. But we need to prepare these students for the real world. Psychology says they need to be tough enough to learn to cope with and accommodate to things in life that they're not going to like. They're not going to like everything. Everybody's not going to get a trophy. 
and that's not going to make everybody happy, but... <laughs> they're not happy anyway. <laughs> they're not happy anyway. Yeah. Now, is there a point that you believe we should start teaching these kids how to cope with anxiety, depression, stress, cyberbullying, these issues as part of the curriculum in school? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, even though I practice from an eclectic, you know, point of view, I, I believe that cognitive behavioral therapy is the most researched um, therapy. It's probably the easiest to understand and to put into practice because um, it's very, you know, systematic in terms of how it works. But to change your thinking about something um, and not just act on your feeling, but to actually check it, make sure that it's not distorted in some way, hear what some other, you know, possibilities are, and start to really look at, is this just me and my the way that I feel? Is this something that, you know, like you said, is something that needs to be pursued and dealt with? And I think that we just need to teach our children how to gain skills to cope with adversity, prejudice, bullying, you know, all of these things, being offended, um, and that it doesn't make it right, but it teaches them how to cope with it, whether that's making the complaint or whether that's dealing with it, you know, onto themselves or whether it's addressing it or whatever it is. I think to give them some skills other than just call somebody out on social media and try to get them canceled. Cognitive behavioral therapy, to me, seems like a very understandable intervention, short-term intervention strategy that will work with kids at virtually any age. I agree. It also identifies, you know, if you, if you have it out there in the schools, it identifies for teachers and administrators what the problems are, right? Because so much of this is in secret and without their knowledge. And so kids want to vent. They want to talk about things. And I know when I was a, a, a social worker in school, in a school setting, public school, um, I would have, you know, a lot of kids come to my office and have lunch with me. And we would just sit and chat. And I would find out a lot in that hour lunch period about what was going on. And then, but I was only one person and I was a social worker at the time and a minority in the school. And, you know, they don't want to hear the problems, you know, they, they don't really want to hear it. Um, so I think if, if universally we did this in schools and it was just part of the curriculum, that would be amazing. Yeah. If they can just teach kids just some of the basic tenets of cognitive behavior therapy, how to reframe their internal dialogue. Don't assume you can read the minds of the person that you're dealing with. Don't assume that you can predict the future. Don't catastrophize. Don't label. Don't discount positives about yourself. Learn to accept compliments from other people. Stop negative filtering, all of these things, and you know, teach them the four criteria for irrational thought so they can test their thinking if they don't have the 
wherewithal to go talk to somebody. All the, all the different things can make a huge difference. And we don't know when our thoughts are distorted either. No, so not unless, unless you we, test them. Yeah, exactly. Get them, if nothing else, to stop playing the what-if game mm. and realize let's live in the moment and get through. There are so many important things they can teach them. I think if we would start doing some of these things instead of coddling these kids, I think we would have a much better chance of preparing them for life and them succeeding. But that's not going to happen unless you put money and time behind it. And they did some of that in the last reauthorization after we had the hearings, but that was at elementary and secondary level. We'll see how much difference it makes. But now things, the pendulum seems to have swung the other way. So we're not here to discount anybody's experience in any way, in anything. There are legitimate traumas, no question about it. We're not saying that. There are triggers that people can walk right into and have a genuine bad response. We're just saying that trigger's gotten to be a hair trigger. And real trauma is being lost in hypersensitivity with so many things that are being labeled as traumatic that really don't qualify as trauma. And if everybody can complain about anything that makes them even moderately uncomfortable, rather than learning to deal with that discomfort so they can take it in stride, they're going to have a rough ride when they get out of college. And college should prepare people to deal with the real world. <laughs>